Levered Lad, Victor Frankel, a.k.a. Vic, Shake, a.k.a. Sam Hake, Tej, a.k.a. Hugh Ragsdale, the 17th, and Chris, a.k.a. Lil Hack, a.k.a. me. <laughs> uh, today we'll be talking about money, doing a What is Money podcast. Uh, the motivation to keep you listening for this pod is, first, money is a social lever for humanity. Um, money is what enables the division of labor in the economy, which is what our, our, what economists would argue uh, increases man's productivity. So for once we start dividing up labor across more people um, and specialize in what we build, we can create more than we would if everyone was just a generalist. So money is the lever that enables that. Uh, two, at the personal level, the more you understand and have a conceptual model of what money is from a first principles type perspective, I think it becomes easier to make decisions about money. And three, um, money is just this kind of weird force that exists in the world that if you never get into philosophically can be kind of confusing and it's just kind of fun to go down the rabbit hole and talk about it. So today, um, we're gonna get into money. You guys ready? Yeah, buddy. Let's do it. Sweet. So, um, when I started doing the research for this pod, it started with googling money and going to Wikipedia. According to Wikipedia, money uh, economists say money has three functions. First, it's a unit of account. Second, a medium of exchange, and third, uh, a store of value. So what does that all mean? Unit of account is basically uh, as businesses do their work, uh, both uh, purchasing uh, their goods, their cost, like their goods that they're going to then transform into some end product. You know, they have to make decisions when they're purchasing these goods and when they're selling what they produce. Uh, so the way that they price those things throughout is in the unit of account, which is money. Um, medium of exchange. This one is basically just capturing the fact that when I when I uh, want to go buy something from someone's store or purchase some service, uh, I use money to kind of do that exchange. And the store value is basically this idea that um, I can maintain purchasing power across time by holding money. Anything you guys want to add onto those three kind of clarifications of uh, money's functions? No. I think, I think that makes, that makes, yeah. makes a ton of sense. Straightforward. Cool. So um, in the philosophy of money, there's kind of two schools of thought about how money arises. One, uh, I'm just going to call the Austrian philosophy based on Austrian philosophers who, I don't know if they're actually Austrian. Maybe the first one was Austrian, and then the rest were just scattered across Europe. But it's kind of a libertarian school of thought about how money evolves um, kind of naturally just out of like a state of nature because man needs to exchange. Uh, man must exchange in order to accomplish his ends. Um, so that's one school of thought that, will, that I kind of bias towards. Um, so I'm going to probably talk that book more so than the second school of thought is called uh, the state theory of money or chartalism. Chartalism 
basically is this idea that the government comes in and basically issues money. Um, and because the government issues the money, uh, that, that causes its existence. And basically they can control the money supply uh, because they're the ultimate essentially monopoly on violence so they can do what they want. Um, and I think the interesting thing to think about when you compare these two kind of philosophies is how it relates back to the, the three uh, functions of money, uh, unit of account, medium of exchange, and store value. Um, so basically, we can start going, we can start with the Austrian school and talk about how they describe why money evolves naturally um, to accomplish the three functions um, that you, you need it for in the economy. Um, so Austrians talk about the saleability of money across time and space. Saleability is just the ability, uh, saleability is the ability to conduct a sale, essentially. <laughs> um, nice sounding, or the, the word kind of makes sense. Um, and so what does that mean, um, saleability across time and space? I think the way to get into this is to think about uh, what comes before money exists is direct barter. So you can imagine, we can go into to the um, thought experiment where you live on an island, um, there is 10 bananas and 10 apples, right? And there's say two people, or so yeah, let's start with two people on the island. I didn't rehearse this, so hopefully this ends up working out. Um, <laughs> there's two people on the island, 10 apples, 10 bananas. For some reason, bananas are only grown in one part of the island where one person lives, and the apples are grown on the other part of the island where the other person lives. And, um, but each person has a taste for apples and bananas. So what, what happens there? Um, the natural explanation is that, well, since there's 10 apples and 10 bananas and both want apples and bananas, so there'll end up being an exchange rate between one-to-one uh, -one between apples and banana. When I want to get a banana and you want an apple, we go there, we swap them, um, and now we both get to enjoy the fruits that grow on each other's sides of the island. Um, and so this is when barter works perfectly. Basically, uh, we both want something at the same time that the other person has, which is called uh, the coincidence of wants. Um, so it needs to line up perfectly in time and space that we want to exchange this good. Um, that works perfectly as long as you only have apples and bananas and somehow your body runs efficiently on fructose. Uh, but what happens? <laughs> I mean, we, we love our meats here on Levered Lads. So what happens now, magically, we, we plop a third person on the island who happens to uh, annex the area of the island where uh, these just very plump cows grow, right? Um, <laughs> they, grow, they, grow, they grow out of the ground. They That's how you made it sound. They, they, they've grown from the primordial soup straight to a cattle. Where's this island, dude? Right. What's the address? <laughs> yeah, can I, can I hop in there? Yeah. I, need, I need some cattle. <laughs> Uh, <laughs> I mean, if I told you where this was, I, I, I would be revealing my secret of how I grow my cattle. So I <laughs> my plump, I you know. my plump cows. <laughs> my, plump, my plump cows. <laughs> um, 
So basically, we got this island with three, uh, with uh, with three people. Two people. One person has ten apples. One person has ten bananas. The other person has uh, one whole cow. <laughs> so, but the person with the cow wants uh, wants an apple and a banana, but he doesn't want to give up his whole cow at one time. And so now we get get into the issue of uh, you know how do we solve direct barter where um, maybe one cow is worth in his mind a hundred apples, right, or a hundred bananas. But there's only 10 apples or 10 bananas growing a year. We start getting into this issue where coincidence of wants don't line up perfectly at one time. Um, for the person who grows apples, they might need to have grown 10 years of apples to get one cow. Um, or the, and the person who has a cow might not actually, even though a cow is worth 100 apples, they might only want one apple at a time. They don't want to get 100 apples. Apples rot. They're perishable. Like, I, I mean... If you're addicted to fructose, you might eat 100 apples in a week. But, you know, most people are probably going about three a week. So that's, you know, that'll last you 33 weeks. So, you you know, you get things are getting complicated here. Um, and so money evolves, according to the Austrians, to solve this uh, coincidence of wants problem. If we're only doing direct exchange, we get into a lot of issues. Whereas if we can do indirect exchange, um, if I can trade for something that I know everyone else wants, and then I can hold on to that, well, now I start to solve uh, the the uh, coincidence of wants problem. Am I outlining that all right? Any clarifications? Yeah. No, it makes sense. Um, sounds, sounds like a sounds like the island got a huge upgrade. You know, just for it was just not cutting out. <laughs> Right, so they 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 realize that there's these precious metals on the island, <laughs> these these fine gems, and there's only there's a thousand of them. But everyone, <laughs> actually, I'm not going to do this. I'm going to mess up the. I'm going to start messing up the math. It's getting too complicated. Um, Sorry, I'm going to add only arithmetic. I'm, I'm, I'm going to add, add something something quicker there. So, uh, when people exchange things or services, um. Each individual in their mind, they have an idea of what they desire and what they don't desire and what their relative desires are. And economists would describe this as, as having a utility function, right? So someone wants bananas, someone wants apples. Um, the guy who wants the bananas doesn't necessarily value the apples or the cow at all, right? So you have to navigate the issue, which is um, fulfilling everyone's utility function. And if via direct exchange, there's no coincidence of wants, we can't directly exchange things with one another. So we need a proxy um, that sort of tokenizes or represents that utility function. If you have that proxy that's freely tradable, it allows you to expand trade um, beyond just your, your little island. If I'm really good at something and I can do it very, very quickly, whether it's create a product or do a service, um, you know, let's say I'm excellent at you know, forging iron into weapons, and, you know, Hake's excellent at fishing, but I don't necessarily want the fish itself. And we can exchange money as a sort of proxy for utility. And if people broadly think that there's utility in that money, they need not necessarily buy the specific products or services that might not be valuable to them. They'll take the proxy and they'll be able to do with that proxy to then go buy the direct services that directly appeal to them. 
So you get this sort of scaling effect. And um, in my view, the, the problem with the charter list or state approach is um, ultimately, you know, preempting any state or religious body that governed the distribution and the creation of these, these proxies, these monies, um, you still needed people to be able to store this value, to store utility. And so you could argue, I think, pretty easily that um, having a form of that storage for indirect exchange is very much like a human phenomenon. It's an emergent phenomenon that comes from people um, interacting organically um, and acquiring goods and services and then selling goods and services. Like super early on, right, like people gravitated towards this like shelling point of finding a money, like this proxy for value. And so really early on, for example, like on this island, right, um, if you needed some proxy for exchange, if one guy didn't want to buy a whole lot of apples directly right now, then you could say that the three people on the island decided that, you know, shells could be useful for that proxy. Now, that proxy is, is, is saleable across time because unlike the apples and the bananas, it doesn't perish, right? It has, it has, uh, has endurance to it. The problem with the island is the shells are probably everywhere. And so if you can easily get them, if you can easily increase the supply of these tokens that are kind of these utility tokens, you've got a problem. So you're going to, you find people um, throughout history gravitating towards these stores of value um, and then gravitating away from them. And I think we can kind of talk about um, what are the characteristics of this sort of proxy that make it like a genuinely good form of money. Because there's good money and then there's bad money. Um, and on this podcast, in trying to bring light to some of the levers in life, you ought to probably stay away from the bad money and store your wealth that you've worked hard to acquire in those good forms of money. Yeah. Right. Go ahead, Tim. Oh, no, I, um, I, I'm, I feel like I'm getting schooled right now, but... Um... I was going to say, like, uh, there, something came to mind. Well, I, I'm, I've been thinking of um, how Naval describes money and how Michael Saylor describes money. Like, those were two people I was listening to recently. And um, Naval, I forget exactly how he words it, but he basically says it's an IOU from society, like, representing work, which is kind of what you guys are both saying. But I think that's an easy way to think about it. Um, Michael Saylor kind of describes it differently, but he describes, he thinks, he says money is, is energy, right? Because with money, you can, you can buy any type of energy. So it's like the most, I don't know what the word would be, but it, it, it represents all energy. Um, and I think, I think those both kind of are similar, but that's, that's how I think about it. Because like, <clears throat> like you said, I, I like that. What's it, the coincidence of want? Cause it really does. It's, it's kind of up to chance. It has to be a coincidence that that apple is worth to me what that banana is worth to you. Um, right. Which if we think about in society, it's like, that's, that's, it's very, you know, inefficient. Um, so I don't know. I definitely am on the side of the, yeah. the, the Austrian school of thought as well. It seems like that this is something that naturally would occur, you know, the need for money. I think you can, um, I think you can tie Naval and um, Saylor's points together. So, work is the application like from like a physics definition is you know applying energy across some displacement like kinetic energy across some displacement that's doing work and then when you do that work you get an iou back um 
in the Vols case, which is essentially like uh, an IOU is like potential energy. Um, yeah. So by doing work, expending kinetic energy, you get back this IOU, which is a potential energy. Um, and so in that sense, I, I have been thinking more and more of money as um, kind of financial potential energy that you can put back into the world. Um, and yeah. I guess tying it back to coincidence of wants, it's like you could you can go from you could do your work and and then exchange it for someone else's final product of work, or you can like TJ saying you can have this proxy for potential energy that then you can go and and use for anyone else's final product of work. Right, because without money, it's like any good or service still is potential energy, but it's kind of conditional potential energy right it's like it could be worth nothing if nobody wants it at the time you are looking to to trade it whereas money right, right. well you know i mean good money and i'm sure we'll get into this but it's money is anytime you know it's it's not really conditional i mean there are some exceptions to that but yeah yeah i think that's a good segue into oh god well i was just gonna say i think the allusion to um potential kinetic energy um, in physics is is also super instructive, right? Because um, when you have a ball or you have a, you know, a, a car sitting at the at the peak of a roller coaster, right? That, that potential energy pretty accurately tracks the kinetic energy that occurs when the car goes over the hump and heads down, careens down to the roller coaster. You lose a little bit due to heat and sound, but it's mainly converted fully, right? So I think if you get that back to money and you have sort of this, this potential energy um, in the form of an IOU that we decide is a proxy for the value of our time or the service or whatever, it gets tricky when, um, you know, I hold this IOU that I've received for some sort of output. So I get this IOU from my employer that says, this is the proxy for the value of your time, right? And then you get this proxy. And if the proxy maintains value, then you can go trade it for other goods and services productively. So you're converting your time from potential energy into the kinetic energy that is this financial energy proxy. But what happens when that conversion sort of falls apart, right? When the car at the top of the coaster, it doesn't convert its potential energy to kinetic energy. So if the value of that proxy starts to erode, then you're trading your time way, way, way more cheaply. You're devaluing your time actively. So if someone, um, God forbid, tweaks <laughs> or dicks around with the value of that proxy, um, that someone is responsible for devaluing the value of your time, which is very, very painful if you think about. Um, but I think a useful sort of thought experiment, um, you know, the transition from the potential energy to the kinetic energy, that conversion could sort of um, some slippage could be introduced, which is problematic for someone earning. To uh, at the risk of running this metaphor far, farther than it should be, um, you could take a step further if you can convert money as potential energy into um, kinetic energy. Then, as you accumulate money and potential energy, that represents um, your power, which in physics is the like. The rate at which you can do work, right? And so, you want money that is more powerful in the sense that it will more effectively allow for you 
to kind of harness kinetic energy and to put economic activity into the world. Um, and so being cognizant of um, kind of that money's role allows for you to understand how it's like letting you interact with the world and um, just honestly be more powerful, which obviously comes back to the idea of leverage. Um, I think Peter's about to start talking about it. Um, what are the characteristics that make good money, hard money, strong money? <laughs> yeah. Um, Let's get into that. I'm interested. And, um, so the Austrians basically say money's role um, is saleability. I said time and space, but it's really saleability across scales, time and space. So those are the three things we are thinking about. Um, so scale means whether I want to buy, um, I can buy all different types, or we can do all types of transactions across different sizes. So whether I wanted to do a microtransaction on the internet um, for like for a song, or I wanted to buy a property, a huge estate, I should be able to do that with one, the same type of money. Across space means that I can exchange goods in the US, I could do it in China, I can do it, um, I can use that money anywhere. And then across time means I could use that money to do an exchange right now, or I can do it in a hundred years. Right. Um, and the reason for that is you want this, if, if you're gonna have this proxy of potential energy, then you ideally wanna be able to use it in as many situations as possible. And they basically, these dimensions of scale, space, and time kind of exhaust uh, all the situations that you would want to use it in. And so if those are like the three kind of meta characteristics we're looking for, we can start breaking it down into um, how you can kind of maximize for uh, good performance on those three dimensions. So one thing is uh, with regard to scale is divisibility. You want your money to be um, to be able to be used, like you want to be able to divide it into very small pieces and then accumulate it back into bigger pieces so that you can both do the microtransaction for like a, a single song on the internet or a cup of coffee, as well as a huge, a huge exchange for like to be able to buy a whole island. Um, so when they talk about money, divisibility is an important thing. So, when it so comes to look, can we can we just let's plug three, let's give some examples um, to those three meta characteristics. So we have saleability across time, right? So you want something that endures into the future that people can hold and the value doesn't erode. So that's why an apple has bad saleability across time, right? Its value erodes over time. You can't use an apple. Saleability across space, right? Something that's portable that can be shipped long distances um, and transacted with. An apple is probably fine, but something like if you have a ship to barter, that's very difficult to get across space, right? It's almost impossible. Whereas something like a dollar or gold might be pretty easy for me to transact with, hey, us being across the country. I mean, not the easiest, but easy enough. And you have scale, right? So you want to buy a song online. It's very difficult to use gold to do so, right? To buy a 99 cent song, gold would need to be chopped up infinitesimally small. But maybe on the on the high side, if I wanted to exchange gold for a Lamborghini with someone in Dubai, 
you know, I could get some bullion bars and that would be a useful transaction. So the idea of money, something like the greenback, at least ostensibly, the greenback can achieve all those three saleability characteristics. Right. Right. Um, I think the usually what they talk about with respect to saleability across space is portability um, and durability. So kind of what you're talking about, um, barting with a ship across space is really hard because it's just not portable. Um, similar with anything, any type of store value that is too big, uh, it's going to be hard uh, to basically transact with it across across the globe. Obviously, hunter-gatherer time, that wasn't that important, but we live in a globalized society where that becomes more important. Um, that's actually one of the drawbacks of gold is exchanging with billions of dollars of gold across the globe moving billions of dollars and pounds of gold is is really expensive and hard to do and so it's not a great um it's not a great money for global exchange um and that was kind of a downfall for being basically centralized by the government um right i think the most interesting thing is saleability across time um because historically all monies have um been debased across time um and so the the way to think about saleability across time is what's called the stock to flow model which is uh basically what is how does the supply of the money change across time where the stock at any time is how much supply exists and the flow is the delta, how much it's changing in that moment. Um, and so when people look at monies, they look at the stock to flow ratio. Wait, can you explain the flow? That's the that's the change in what? The supply. Um, okay, so, so stock is the uh, supply and then the flow is the change in supply at a given point in time. Mm -hmm. okay. Stock, stock um, is like the stock is like so, the Stock is like the water in a bathtub, and the flow is like how fast the faucet is ripping. Money. Um, and so what you kind of see historically is what be it what becomes money is something that has a very large stock to flow uh, metric. I guess stock to flow is a way of trying to quantify scarcity, um, in a way, um, because if it, if there's no new supply being added, like if the stock low ratio is infinite then there's nothing there's no um new uh units of that stock being added um and so historically the goods the commodities that have a the best stock to flow ratio end up being what you expect to hold value over time right because if there's um a hundred shells right now that you're using for money and you don't think anyone's ever going to find another shell again, then you, you can use that as a proxy to be like, okay, in a hundred years, there's still only going to be a hundred shells. Right. And so I expect it to maintain value over time. But, um, interestingly, like most, for most societies, what they were using for money, um, the stock to flow ends up at some point just shooting up, which ends up destroying the value of the underlying money. So an interesting example is Native Americans and um, they, they they commonly use shells as a form of money. Um, and then when the 
uh, Europeans came over. They had better boating technology and were just more adept in, in the water. So they were able to basically farm way more shells. And once they farm these shells, it just crashed the it crashed the utility of the shells um, as a form of money. And you see that time and time again, like with with most examples of kind of naturally occurring isn't uh, the, commodities. I, I'm gonna that are uses money. I'm gonna sound stupid here, but isn't there a concern with us finding like a massive amount of precious metals on this asteroid in like the next fifty years? Because this is kind yeah, of like a modern sure, example because sure. yeah. gold is, I mean, obviously we, we mine new gold, right? Like we're, the, people around the world are constantly mining new gold, but the rate at which we are, which is kind of like the stock to flow ratio is somewhat favorable as it for, to make it a store of value, but they're, <clears throat> yeah, I, I don't know. I just read about, do you guys know what it's, I don't know, you, get, you guys might know more about it than me, but it's basically an asteroid where they can tell there's like, a trillion tons of gold or something ridiculous, right? Yeah. 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 Which, yeah. which, 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 I mean, gold is an interesting example. Like gold has like deep length in terms of saleability across time. It's, yeah, it, it, it's been, it's been used to store wealth for so long and as a medium of exchange for so long um, and as a unit of account for so long. And part of the reason is because it's hard to get. So, um, you know, the flow over the stock is roughly 2% per year. Like, Two percent more gold is mined and added to the supply per year, which is it, which is pretty good, right? It has a natural mechanism. It's super hard to get, so it's super hard to infuse more of it in the supply. So generally, it holds wealth well. But what happens when the supply side of that equation goes berserk? So the asteroid is like a is like a modern um, hasn't occurred yet, but if it does, it sort of would be like a modern gold rush, right? We had a gold rush back in the day, and at that point, people were putting their, their wealth in gold, and the supply was generally not screwed with, and so it was predictable, so it had good saleability. But then the gold rush happened, and all the supply came online, and so gold's value decreased. But yeah, I mean, I think, um, you know, with Elon and his shenanigans, if he manages to um, land on another planet and get the mining rig in place, you could potentially have a deluge added to the supply of gold, which, which kind of cucks it as a, uh, as a store of value. And this, this brings up something I think is interesting to discuss because gold has um, some intrinsic value, right? Like gold is used in jewelry and I believe in, in some application in electronics, right? Um, yeah. How is it important for a money to have an intrinsic value? Or if so, how important? Because I don't. That's a trillion dollar question. Right. Because, like, <laughs> I've heard people make that argument um, against Bitcoin because it doesn't have intrinsic value, but it, but it, the dollar doesn't have intrinsic value either. So I never really understood that argument. I think if you come back to the saleability across time, space, and scales, then the argument for intrinsic value doesn't. Is it just like an added bonus of gold? basically um it's almost like the intrinsic value or like the commodity uses of gold contribute to your belief in um the saleability across oh okay um, yeah but that doesn't mean like oh, i guess you'd have to argue if you accept the saleability premise that only things with intrinsic value will have saleability across time 
and that's why you need the intrinsic value. If, if then, you, go ahead. No, you got it. Oh, I was just gonna say with um, with gold, I think like that's a um, people who defend gold, especially against the likes of like Bitcoin and, and fiat, um, will mention it's uh, commercial value, right? Like we we value gold for like three reasons. It's sort of the store value, but people like to wear it to signal status, which has its own value to humans, right? Signaling status is is as human as it gets. We've done it since the beginning of time. Um, but then probably more importantly is it's commercial use, right? It's like used to 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 produce electronics and um and so that's important to us right now. We have a lot of electronics. Those electronics are important to our commerce and to our quality of life. So for now, gold retains that value. But if you break it all the way down, if we don't value the end products that mining of gold enable us to build, then what commercial value does gold have? If all of a sudden, like the next country um, that becomes kind of the economic kingpin, let's say it's India, if 1 billion Indians decide they no longer value gold as jewelry, they instead like diamonds, then you can, you can kill, you can, you can take that value out of the equation, right? So if you break it all the way down, I think intrinsic value is like largely a mirage. Like values and I beholder. You guys will value different things than I do. Like maybe Sam, you want the apples. Chris, you want the bananas. And I don't give a shit about the fructose. I want the, the cow. So like if you break it all the way down, like the only things that truly, truly have intrinsic value, if you will, are like the basic human needs, right? Like yeah. what do you really, 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 really need? You die if you don't have food, water probably shelter and air. So those are the things that have an in, inherent value, but you, it, it's sometimes difficult to barter those. It's difficult to trade those. And so we've created these abstractions um, that are sort of denominated in those underlying needs. I think also the, the Austrians would say the value of gold isn't from its intrinsic value in electronics. It emerged as the store value because it had the best stock it had the best stock to flow ratio of any um, any any commodity that we found in nature, right? So actually, the reason it has intrinsic value oh, is because of its stock to flow yeah, ratio. Yeah, and then it became jewelry because of its stock to flow ratio. And then later, we found out that you could use it in electronics. Right. But its intrinsic value followed from its like objective characteristics that satisfy satisfies man's end, which is to retain availability across. I, I also, yeah, I also really like what, I just want to say, I like what TJ said, because it doesn't, like, if you think about it, it's not, its value isn't fully intrinsic. Like, mm -hmm. it's not guaranteed that it has value to every person anytime. No. Right? It, it's value, it's intrinsic value is that we think it's going to maintain potential energy across time. Like yeah. it has no, it has no value in uh, helping us survive. I'm glad I brought up Unless, that. Unless like it's you. Yeah. yeah, that's interesting. Unless you throw a piece of gold at a deer and eat the deer, I guess, and it has some objective value. But why are you throwing gold at deer? <laughs> yeah, or or if you have a piece of gold, you put it out in the middle of a field, and you bait a neighboring tribe to come get it, and in the meantime, you go steal all their food. <laughs> <laughs> Gold, 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 yeah. gold, gold has stuff. no intrinsic value. What is this nonsense? <laughs> gold is is such an interesting one too. Um, like you think about all the qualities that make it good, hard money, and why we've used it over time. But something interesting that I that I happened upon uh, with gold is 
you think about how difficult it is to mine and how technologically savvy and how much capital is at play. But gold is interesting too because um, it in a way removes the geographical advantages that some nations have in regard to resources. So like, for example, like there are big lithium deposits in, in Chile. So Chile has like a leg up in supplying like the electronic electric vehicle infrastructure of the connect century but gold it seems is relatively evenly distributed across all geographies across the world so it's equally as easy and equally as hard for everyone to get which i think is another nice sort of quality of um of good money like the u.s dollar we're sort of in a privileged position because it's the reserve currency of the world people believe in its power but really only our banks can supply it to us. So if you're in Turkey, you're going to get your weekly paycheck paid in lira. And there's, there's no getting those dollars. The dollar doesn't act, doesn't, it's yeah. not accessible by that system. So it's sort of like this. Um, there's something about uh, a good international store of value being equally accessible by all people, which yeah. is say equally hard to get by all people, which I think is another reason why why Bitcoin and cryptocurrencies are compelling as long as you have a Wi-Fi connection. Yeah. Yeah. I, it's funny. Um, I like, I can just tell by the way, like we haven't really talked about Bitcoin yet, but it's like everything we're talking about is kind of like pointing towards <laughs> it, you know, but it's, this is an interesting thing to bring up with the dollar. Um, and I think people who maybe haven't spent much time out of the country wouldn't, wouldn't understand that. But like, I don't know. I, I, I lived in Brazil for a little bit. So this is just one country, but I know the same is true in Mexico and, and several Central and South American countries. But like what you can buy with $1 is disproportionate, like because of the exchange rate. And it's something that, like I said, most people wouldn't realize, but it's because the dollar is the world reserve currency and we're super right. lucky. Right. And it's, and it's kind of unfair to other, um, to people who are born in other countries just by chance. It's like, they trade weaker with us um they you know because of the because of the currency it's interesting in that in that in that vein um uh yeah the, like the 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 privilege of the dollar um i think is super interesting and it's not something we think about because we were born into it right like it, it was so preposterously lucky that we were born in the u.s that's like not not a not a privilege that's talked about um, yeah. i was helping my sister with an anthropology paper and it was about um healthcare in Cuba, but they were talking about how in a lot of these communist regimes where the supply of dollars is, 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 uh, is so centralized and these regi regimes issue as many dollars as, as they damn well please, that what you'll see in these emerging economies that don't have good sort of free market structure is there'll be two economies that evolve this emergent property. One denominated in the soft money where the supply is flooded the stock to flow is is quite poor and then another economy where you can buy better goods with a better proxy of value so you have a, like a u.s dollar economy emerging in the black market and then you have the organic economy that works on on you know the, the, the communist um underlying currency which i think just just speaks to um how stores of value are not equal um and how um you know the u.s dollar enables you all kinds of rights that having lira or Mexican peso or whatever else does not. There's a famous um, called Gresham's Law, which is like uh, soft money chases out or bad money chases out good money or soft money chases out hard money, something like that. I guess I could look it up. I could give a good quote. 
But basically, it's this idea that, you know, if there's two different types of money that exist in an ecosystem, everyone figures out that they want to hold the, the hard money. And so then everyone will hoard the hard money and then just start exchanging with the soft money. And they're trying to get rid of it, which right. kind of then drives the price of hard money up and soft money down because people, everyone wants to get rid of their soft money and hold on to their hard money. Kind yeah. of an interesting d- dynamic. Uh, it's bad money drives out good. Is the pithy explanation according to Britannica? Um, so um, I f- do. Do one of you guys want to? Uh, we've kind of already touched on some of them, right? But some of the other qualities of good money. Um, like, I think fungible is a good one to talk about because that's like in the in the uh, vernacular, as TJ says. Um, yes, it is. It is with the NFT craze, right? Um, yeah, we can do that. Um, fungible. Um, basically, what fungible means is that you can replace one unit with another unit, and they function the exact same way. Um, and just by standardizing your unit of money, then people don't need to care about which one they have. Uh, and so that that just facilitates more transactions so with gold basically um generally the government would fill this fulfill this role where they would they would mint the gold tokens such that they're all the same size and the same weight such that you can very easily reason about how much they're worth um and so the more fungible the money is the easier it is to reason about their worth and it facilitates more transactions. Um, and so then, basically, on Ethereum, there's fungible tokens, which is like an interface. Um, and then being the clever... That's e- those are the ERC. Are, those are ERC-20, right? And then what's the yeah. what's the protocol for um, the other one? NFTs? Uh, no, non-fungible is ERC-721. And, um, and 1155, the, the double ball. So basically fungible was already a word in economics and then the engineers were like, well, this is not fungible because there's only like, if you, <laughs> so we'll call them non-fungible tokens um, and a non-fungible token. I mean, something that's non-fungible is like a piece of art, right? There's only one of them. There's only one Mona Lisa, Like the idea of having a million Mona Lisa's that could fill in with one another um, doesn't make sense. Um, so, and, and so that's why non-fungible tokens have like popped up on the internet because people are trading digital art, which in their nature is actually very fungible. But then the token, there's only one of them, and that's the non-fungible right. part. So you can mint like ten NFTs of the same art, but each one has a different, basically has different code that makes it unique, right? Mm-hmm. Yeah, okay. yeah. And and with so money doesn't necessarily like i guess we could have a broad definition of money where it doesn't have to be fungible but pretty much anything that people refer to as money is fungible right cuz i'm thinking and of fungibility like fungibility makes it more sellable cuz right cuz if we like if you didn't if money wasn't if you if we were going to um use non-fungible things as as part of our definition of money like like a classic you know, old school car, like a vintage Ferrari could be money or a house could be money, but it's not, I mean, it's not money, right? I mean, no one would refer to it as that way, right? 
Yeah. So those are stores of value, which is, so they're not monies. Like usually money we think of colloquially as like a medium of exchange. But then there you enter this kind of gray area where, yeah, you know, valuable things, scarce things are stores of value. And if you had to, you could treat them, they could function like money, right? You can, you can kind of barter with them if you had to. Right. Um, and so a lot of times the, the path to something becoming a money is it's a store of value first because it's scarce and people value it. And then it's only once it starts to be able to facilitate a lot of transactions that it becomes a medium of exchange and then unit of account. And so it's kind of like there's a evolution that to money sense. that starts with the store of value. Um, which is interesting. But then we yeah, look I mean, at the, the, go ahead. Money, I mean, money is, I mean, you, you, I think you got it the, at the point, like money is ultimately a spectrum, right? And something that wasn't necessarily used as money could very well be used as money if it grows into the characteristics that enable good exchange and good store of value. Cool. Um, yeah, okay. so if you're really bougie, you know, wine is money. And then, so isn't it weird if we look at the dollar, because the dollar is like the most widely used money in the world, but it's not a good store of value anymore. So it's kind of like along that evolution, it's a very good medium of exchange, but it's, it's not a good store of value. Like if you just keep money and sitting in a bank account for 10 years, you get screwed. I think, I think the, the worry, the worry for money is, um, at one point, I mean, some people would argue today it has saleability across those three domains, but there's some worry um, given how the powers that be are adding to the inflation that it loses saleability across time. And as it does that, if you're someone who is saving today, who has wealth to store today, it's worth questioning whether if you store it in the U.S. dollar, which has been saleable across time for quite a while. If you store it in US dollars today, does it erode in value in 10, 20, 30 years? And if so, should you put your money into or should you put your wealth into a harder store of value? Yeah. 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 I mean, at one point, so. And this kind of happens, this is the fate of all money, like historically, is that um, at some point the stock to flow changes and it starts becoming less valuable. Um, so gold, there was a gold rush, you know, maybe Elon's going to go to an asteroid and bring back a big stack of gold. Like that, that would break the gold stock to flow model. Um, silver is historically easy to mine. That's why it, it never became quite valuable. I brought up how the shells. Native Americans using shells got wrecked by uh, the Europeans. Um, the thing with the USD is for historically that the stock to flow ratio wasn't too bad. And it's just over the last 20 years where we've been accelerating into more and more of an inflationary environment that the Federal Reserve is adding more and more dollars. And so it's quickly getting worse and worse. And I would argue like based on the amount of debt we've accumulated, we need to keep printing money to avoid paying off that debt. So it's it's not it's not going to change. It's not going to revert the other direction and become and and have a better stock to flow. It's kind of like, given its environment, the U.S. has to keep um, inflating away its value. 
yeah, terrible storyline now. We, we've um, seen, we've, we've also, like, it, it, we don't necessarily have to, like, prognosticate about what might happen. I mean, it could be the case that, um, you know, the Fed and the Treasury um, decide it's time to start ratcheting down the flow. Maybe they'll collect more taxes. Maybe they'll allow interest rates to float a little bit higher. Either way, you, you've seen examples in the past where, um, the flow increases too quickly, absent any fundamental change, um, and the currency wildly debases. Like we have hyperinflation in the Weimar Republic, right? The government at the time decided that instead of collecting additional tax, which would effectively take supply out of the market and bolster the currency to fund the war, they were instead going to lever up, take out some debt, and issue a whole bunch of currency. As soon as that currency floods the market, what you saw is sort of a flywheel effect where the flow was added to far, 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 far too quickly. And so in real time, the money was debased. You have stories of people going at the beginning of the day to their jobs, demanding they get paid up front. And by the end of that day, that currency had lost a quarter or half of its value, um, which is sort of like the extreme but I think useful simulation for what might happen um, if there's sort of profligacy um, coming from the, the money printer. I mean, I think you could argue it's a, it's a archetype of a failing civilization that the money gets debased. It happened, I mean, you see it in like the Latin America countries that go totalitarian, but you also, I mean, you see it in the history of Rome when the Rome Romans started to fall. They just started debasing their uh, their coins because they had too many liabilities to pay. It's almost like every entity they they create too many liabilities for themselves because they're short term oriented, and eventually, uh, oh look at that! So uh, <laughs> yeah, I was yeah. I wanted to try this out, but <laughs> get it. But yeah, for for anyone listening, we're we're showing a graph right now. This is actually something TJ sent me when I asked him like, how can we look at inflation? So this is. M2 money supply through, you know, since 1960. And if you look closely in the past year, we went parabolic basically. <laughs> so it's something like, yeah. I don't know the exact number. There's, there's kind of different reports about it, but I don't know between 40%. But yeah, so there, what is it? 30 to 40% of all the dollars in circulation were printed in, in the last 12 months. Yeah. So. You know that uh, that definitely is an argument against the scarcity of the dollar. Yeah, and, and you ask, sure. uh, in that situation where you have a forty percent surge in supply, that could be okay if there was a forty percent um, improvement in underlying economic fundamentals. But as we damn well know, the economy right. has eroded over the same twelve months. Financial markets haven't, but People are out of work. There's less tax being collected. Things aren't getting better. So the stock to flow there is, is not super propitious going forward. And you don't see like, you don't see that 40% increase in supply show up in inflation numbers. But I think you could argue that, um, you know, the measuring inflation, the way we measure it right now might not necessarily be indicative of how strong that greenback is, but. We'll see. If we yeah, come back and, to, oh, 
I, I was going to say, Chris, you kind of explained to me why there, you, you might argue that inflation already is occurring to a high degree. I think it'd be interesting if you touched on that. Yeah, uh, I've told this from other people, but um, inflation, as the government measured it, CPI is based on things like food and um, and other types of uh, consumer goods that are have deflationary pressure from things like globalization and technology, which keeps prices down. But if you look to assets that aren't in CPI, that are more scarce, like education, um, housing, other financial assets, those have been through the roof throughout 2020, which is a sign that um, the inflation's here. It just depends what goods you measure with it. Um, and something Taylor and those... always likes to talk about is like the goods you actually care about, like housing and education that aren't cheap have gotten way more expensive. And and I, you also pointed out to me like those are the goods that preserve wealth across generations. Right. Um, you know, because like education, right? It, you get education, you're more likely to make more money. Um, how, houses are probably one of the best like stores of value across time. Um, store, you know, transfers of wealth to your children and your grandchildren. And if, if the, you know, people who make less money, like middle to lower class, uh, socioeconomically, you know, if they can't buy education, uh, or they already can't buy education in houses to some degree, but it's even less now. It's like the wealth gap is going to keep extending as we inflate the value of these um, wealth transferring assets or wealth generating. I mean, education right. kind of generates wealth like indirectly, but um yeah definitely right i don't know it's interesting there's, there's a, one way to put it gonna... is people that own capital are benefiting from this inflation and people that don't own capital aren't so you can even think of education as human capital we already paid for your human capital 40 years ago like boomers and you paid a couple thousand dollars for education and now versus gen z they're paying hundreds of thousands of dollars for their education like anyone who already owns capital benefits from inflationary environment People that don't own capital, typically poorer people, um, are essentially getting taxed and um, are hurt more by inflationary policies. Yeah, it's really messed up. <laughs> and we might. <laughs> I'm gonna. I'm gonna. You know, the hyperinflation. I saw. I saw somebody with a couple of these the other day. We might lead to a day where we start seeing the dollar looking like this. Yeah, the old hundred. <laughs> again, for the listeners. <laughs> yeah, pop. we're showing the yeah the Zimbabwe hundred trillion dollar bill, um, which is uh, quite a sight. I think you got to drop the cipher attack or whatever you're reading about this morning, Teed. Oh yeah, um, yeah. What I forgot what it's called. It's 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 this condition that has that happened to a whole bunch of people during the Weimar Republic. Oh, cipher shock, I think. Um, cipher shock. Where there was this condition fairly widespread um of people who oh, were cipher stroke cipher stroke zero that makes stroke more... or cipher stroke zero stroke or cipher stroke it makes sense so these people that were um hospitalized for mental illness they had this condition where they would have a piece of paper and a pen and just ad nauseum would be just writing zeros zero 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 on a piece of paper you know, at, at, as if it was just like the embodiment of the currency being useless and then being comfortable with just so many zeros 
on the back end of like of a of a payment. So they would go at the beginning of the day, they would get their, you know, a thousand Reich marks from their employer at the beginning of the day. You know, the five PM bell would come around, they'd go to the baker to get bread and they'd have to spend like four thousand marks compared to that morning. They had to spend two thousand for a loaf of bread. Cipher stroke. Jesus. Zero stroke, yeah. I mean the reason we're doing this podcast for all our loyal listeners, we just don't want you to get the zero stroke. Ah. We don't want you writing zeros ad infinitum. You know. So That's a uh, scary thought, man. It's funny, but that's I mean that's zero, a scary thought. Zero, zero. It, it also it also, <laughs> it also that's why you don't play with soft money. No, you, you, you can't. It also makes you think of like there's a lot in, in the vernacular right now about, you know, what what is a universal human right that your state should provide for you, right? Like Bernie pushes that healthcare is one of them and education is one of them and maybe food and shelter are some more, right? Um, but what I think is interesting beyond that is that's all the stuff that gets the press, but is having solid hard money that you can store your wealth in and transact for real value, is that a human right? So that, I would argue if the other things are, then having good sound money to conduct your business and to store value for your family is just as human. And what's happening is in the process of trying to guarantee those other human rights to people, we're taking out so much debt and printing so much money that if you hold the underlying money, not only does that get debased, but in the process, the things you actually want to buy get more expensive. You can't afford healthcare anymore. You can't afford education anymore. You can't buy any capital assets that are productive that'll build your family's wealth. So when, when money falls out the bottom, you could argue that's like the biggest disservice that a government could do to itself. Yeah. That is, that's a really good point. I like that. Do you guys, I think it would be cool if we talk about Bitcoin a little bit and focus on that and, and maybe why we think in some ways it's a much better form of money than the dollar. Um, I think it would be best just to start comparing it to the dollar. Before we uh, hop into Bitcoin, I, I do want to make one point about money that um, I think it's interesting. Most people, there's like kind of a mystery around money. But I think if you see it as this technology that enables humans to cooperate um, and you see humans as these like social creatures that we work as a team to build things and create things, you see that money is like very native to like our nature. Right. Like the human story is one of cooperating at greater and greater scales to build more and more things. Um, and so money isn't some like evil thing that was created for some people to extract more value out of other people. It was a emergent technology or it's an evolutionary artifact that allows for us to cooperate. Um, and it's very like it's native to our to ourselves. Um, and I think once you start realizing that it, it it's part of our nature, it it uh, I don't it, it changes the way you think about money. So I just wanted to plug that in there real quick. Yeah, I'm okay. No, because we because like there's that saying, money's the root of all evil, but it's like almost the root of all good. <laughs> Not all good, but it's the root of so many good things too. Right. I'm gonna shout out. And I don't. I mean, I don't that. necessarily think it's the root of all evil, but it's definitely the root of some good things. Yeah, I mean, it, it can be evil. Like people, so I guess that's an interesting thing. Money, if you take the IOU, Naval, potential energy kind of riff, 
Like people want money because they want potential energy. So you can try to steal that energy from people, which in, in that sense, it is the root of evil. Like if you're just trying to steal energy from other humans, then that's bad and you are evil. But if you provide useful work and then people reward you with potential energy, then it's also the root of prosperity. So it's almost like a, uh, it's amoral, like any technology, it's amoral. It depends how you use it. Um, and so just blanketly saying money is evil. And if we just didn't have money, things would be good is, uh, is absurd because money is a technology that enables cooperation. And without cooperation, there wouldn't be billions of people on this earth, right? Like that's what, that's what kind of got us out the jungle or out, out the savannah. Yeah, it's, so. it's, it's, it's kind of like when people say weapons are evil, right? Like weapons and money, they don't have any intents, right? It's those that seek them that have the intent. So if money is valuable, then obviously it's going to attract exploitation to it. If it loses its value, then maybe less people will try to exploit it. Right. Yeah, it kind of magnifies or like it's almost like a lever of society. I mean, it's kind of what we said at the beginning, because like it, it let's say let's say I, you know, I, you know, I think there's like a misconception, like doing business is like selfish or something like I, like um, Shaney's coworker uh, said to her, like, oh, like, I just want to help people. Like, I don't care about doing a business like she had this business idea. She's like, but I just want to help people. And and was acting like it was either help people or like make money but by making money like almost without exception is helping people to some degree obviously you can scam people there's like but for the most part you have to be providing a service or a product that people want to pay you for right and so in that way like if you're doing something good for society you're more motivated to keep doing something good because you're gonna you can accumulate wealth right but it also on the on the other hand, like Chris said, because I'm just thinking about like let's say back to the apple and banana example or whatever, <clears throat> like a criminal is gonna be only so motivated to get like apples, you know, because again, they're gonna, you know, go bad in a couple weeks. And it's like you can't do that much with them, right? It's like, okay, how many apples do I want to eat? <clears throat> but if you have millions of dollars and but you can make billions, you know, there's you can do for, you know way more things so kind of i like i like the way you guys explain it it's like it's an immoral it's a technology right it's people can use it for good or evil i guess yeah it, there's a, i think there's sort of a there's sort of like a, a shoddy a collective indictment of commerce right now of innovation right now like people see how wealthy jeff bezos is becoming and then the money is evil comes online and the amassing of wealth comes online. But I think you're exactly right. You, you get rewarded in this unit of value for solving problems for people, for increasing quality of life. So Amazon, for example, like Jeff Bezos has more money than half the world or whatever the stat is, right? But the reason he has that money is because the enterprise he built has built services and goods that solve problems for people, right? They're, like there are stats that say like in, in the in the sixties or seventies of the average paycheck for the average American, some huge portion of that had to go to buying food and shelter for the family. Now today with the efficiencies and the economies of scale that these, you know, robber barons have put together, all those things are way cheaper and way easier to get. Right? So while one man is getting very, very wealthy, 
he solved very, very many problems for very, very million, very, very many millions of citizens. So I think it's sort of just like a, it's this very, um, you know, obvious surface level indictment of the wealthy. But if the system is working correctly, and that's another issue, you only get wealthy if you solve problems. Yeah. Yeah, this, I, I, I'm, I'm saying like, we can go so many directions with this, but they, it, no, this is again, something that Naval talks about, but like, it's not a, you know, basically capitalism um, is not a zero sum game because like you said, you know, the fact that Jeff Bezos is so wealthy, we can, like, I, I, you know, I just moved somewhere. I'm, I've been ordering stuff on Amazon and it's like, I can get it in a day or two days. I like, that's wealth. That's, that's, you know, quality of life that I have because of what he made. So it's, you know, it's easy to look at him and go, oh man, why does he need to be so rich? But it's, you know, really we're all richer to some degree. Our quality of life's richer. Same with like iPhones, you know, just so many things that if, if we didn't have money and we didn't have, you know, a somewhat free market, like we wouldn't have these innovations. Right. Yeah. I think um, an interesting thing to kind of tie on to that is um, as the economy and technology get better, we produce more goods, um, we're capable of more things. If you had hard money in, the, in that the stock, def- like there was no new flow of that money, the money was fixed. It was the perfect hard money. And then the economy keeps getting better. What that means is that hard money gets more valuable over time. So in hard, with hard money, it should grow in value over time. And with soft money, it gets weaker and weaker over time. Um, and so once you started adopting hard money, uh, it kind of ins- you start thinking about saving more because you're like, oh, this dollar I have now or this unit of money I have now in 10 years, if the economy keeps growing, it's going to be worth way more. So I'm just going to keep this unit of money because this potential energy now is worth even more energy in the future, which is um, it's really interesting if you start thinking about money like that, because it it kind of changes your orientation towards time because you don't want to consume right now because, you know, every day you wait, it becomes um, it becomes more it becomes stronger and more powerful. And. And that, and I think that's another reason it's important to like just get down to what are the roots of money because it it can change the orientation of your life. Honestly. Yeah. To uh, yeah. to um, sort of reaffirm how and why this is included in the Levers podcast, um, you know the, the way I think about a lot of this and why deeply understanding money affords you leverage is like you know we're all in our twenties and we'll all probably have families soon and we're trying to look over look after that family's wealth over a pretty long-term horizon so you have a lever in your understanding of money because if you really understand what the first principles of what good money are then you can ensure to avoid the poorer versions and get in earlier to those versions that are uh, durable over time uh, it's kind of having that doubt about the money that we've always taken for granted and ensuring that if you hold a significant amount of your wealth in it, that you really believe in the underlying principles that make it strong money. Right. Here's a case for ethical capitalism. Like, do good things for people that they want to pay you with their energy. 
you get that energy and then store it in something, store it in a battery that doesn't leak it, and then use that battery to provide things for people you care about. And then you're not doing, you're not stealing anything, you're not being evil, you're giving people what they want, and then giving things to people that you care about. And then you know, do that for a hundred years, and hopefully everyone else does that, and then we we just pop off as a society. It's not even like that complicated. <laughs> you might as well, we're, we're just wholesome capitalists. That's all. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Trying to prevent zero strokes. Yeah, we don't want any cipher strokes. <laughs> yeah. God forbid. Um, yeah. I mean, we've come this far. Should we just should we rip the BTC as the hardest money to ever exist, or? I, I think I think we'd be doing ourselves a disservice if we didn't talk about it. You think so? Because like I said, every it's like everything we've been talking about is like pointing at it, but we haven't really talked about I, it. I feel like I feel like a next episode um, where we dive into inflation on a second half of which is BTC might make sense. I mean, we we could we could yeah. we could tease it now, I suppose, but you know we're gonna have we're gonna actually have to open, I, let's we're do that. Open the can of worms and then we have to close it like. Right, right, right. Let's let's do that because it's been a, it's been about an hour, so I think it's good we can wrap up here and do a part two. Um, I think it'll be because I I think also when we get into inflation, we can talk about just how all assets are get inflated when money's printed. I think that's like an interesting thing to talk about. Yeah, um, we'll just jump off the cliff right now. Yeah, the yeah. Pop off. Hey, did you see? Cliff, did you yeah. see we got six reviews on uh, on Apple Podcasts, five stars, baby. Oh, we did. Yeah. I didn't know that. No, that's awesome. Well, thank you to anyone who watched uh, our first first couple ones, and we got many more coming. Um, do you guys have any closing remarks? No feedback. Feedback is open. It's an open ended process. Yeah, yeah. Let us know if there's anything you want to hear us, you know, research and discuss, or uh, yeah, any feedback. Is, is more than welcome. So thanks for watching, guys, and we'll see you on the next one. Damn. Peace, Peace lads.